Well, greetings. This is another episode in our Sermon Talk Plus Plus. Um, I have the privilege of speaking this upcoming Sunday, and, um, and my text is going to be on James 1, 13 to 18. And uh, just as a review for us, the reason we do this is to try to help us, help me understand things from other people's perspective. And, and so we're trying to answer the questions, what does the passage mean? How is the passage structured? And how does that support the meaning? Um, how does this passage relate specifically to the gospel? And how does this passage relate to our people today? What do we need to hear specifically in our day and age and our location? And then what could we do, what could I do to aid in the communication of the message that would make it even more memorable? And so we're not trying to, uh, or never implying that the Holy Spirit isn't what makes it work. What we're trying to do is admit that the Holy Spirit's working even now as we prepare and as these friends of mine help me prepare. So tonight, um, Becky is absent from us because she's preparing for the uh, ladies' make and bake apple pie making party for tomorrow. But we have Donna Boss. Hello. And DJ Breston. Hello. And so, uh, again, the passage being James 1, 13 to 18. Let me read that for us, and then we'll talk about it. <clears throat> when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each of you is tempted when you are dragged away by your own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So that's the passage. And I just wanted to share um, <clears throat> in preparation too, is that um, I, it's easy for me and others to see James as sort of a, a sort of a collection of proverbs that don't seem to flow together necessarily. They just feel like you can pull verses out at random. And they do. There are a lot of standalone passages. But I, I'm, I'm looking at the structure overall, and I would argue that James does have a reason for what he's saying and in what order he's saying it. And so in this, so far in chapter 1, we've noticed that he started right out by telling us to count it joy when we face different kinds of suffering. And then his very next point is that if you lack wisdom, you should ask God. And so I would think that James is saying that somehow being able to interpret suffering correctly requires wisdom. And then he goes into a passage about um, when you ask God for something, you shouldn't doubt. And so if you recall, we had a message about that, that doubting... Um, there is room to doubt myself, maybe, but we cannot and ought not doubt the reality of the gospel. And if we do, we're an unstable, double-minded person. Mm -hmm. And that terminology, uh, James will come to again later in the book. And so then he talks about comparing rich and poor. And I, I think it's just another step in explaining a way of dealing with suffering. Some of you might be suffering, he said, all kinds of trials, right? Count it all joy. One of the kinds of trials could be financial. And so he talks about the blessings of being a uh, poor person, 
and the blessings of being a rich person and how they both have their places and, and that we need to take care of that. And the reason I would link that to suffering is because right after he talks about the rich and poor, he talks about blessed are those who persevere in their suffering. And so he keeps connecting back to that suffering. And so then now we enter this passage where it starts out, no one should say God is tempting me. And so I think that James is continuing his flow of thought of about suffering and that one of the temptations we face in life is that we could maybe think that God is doing something to us in order for us to break or to make us fall or to otherwise um, not have our best interests in mind. And so I think that may be where he's going. And then he goes on and says, uh, by contrast then, so he explains where suffering comes from, which is from the heart and from ourselves. It springs forth. We'll talk about those in detail. But then he finishes this little passage by talking about, again, the, um, the every good and perfect gift comes from above. And that is where the we are sort of a kind of first fruits of all that he's created and, and points almost to me, I think, to the new creation. He says mm -hmm. that it gives birth in our lives. And so, again, it's just like he said, um, count it all joy when you face sufferings. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He's now saying, don't think that God is tempting you. Remember, God only gives good gifts and his goal is to build you up. And so that's sort of an overall approach that I've seen to it. So. That being said, my turn to rest a minute. What do you guys think? What do you see in these verses 13 to 18 as far as what the points are? What's the, what, are his, what are the threads of his argument? To me, it looks like it kind of divides into two sections. The section about being tempted and how to interpret that, how to how to describe that in your own life and that the other section is talking about God's good gifts and the good things that he does. With a transition phrase in the middle, don't be deceived, right? So I, there's a, he's connecting that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Other, what, so that's good. There's some structure, a two-part structure to it, at least. Any other observations or things you notice? I do like what you're saying too, Don, about it being uh, two ideas, but then he expands on both of those ideas with additional content, right? So when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. And then he expands about what temptation actually is. So it's, he sort of defines his terms as he goes. Um, in that first paragraph, that first section, what do you notice as uh, definitions or structures or... It looks like he tells us where the temptation does not come from. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come from God. And where does it come from? It comes from within us. It's a contrast with detail and an explanation and a progression of the temptation that starts in each of us and what the results of it are. Right. Yeah, I like, I like what you said, Donna, about progression. I definitely do see that. Um, I'm not sure, are you talking about yeah, um, desire and giving birth to sin and sin leading to death, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. 
especially that part because it talks about the desire that it comes from inside of us, it comes out of our own evil desire, and then that desire gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth. It's a, 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 a produces B produces C. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that, you know, like you said, the contrast, God, uh, no one should say God is tempting me. So it's not coming from God. And he says, why? Because God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he ever tempt anyone. So straight up, it's just categorically not possible to have God be the source of the temptation mm -hmm. toward evil. We know that God can give us tests that evaluate and help us. You know, he tested Abraham when he told him to bring his son up on the mountain. And, and he um, tested the people of Israel by giving him manna. And so those, but that is not the same as mm -hmm. tempting toward evil. And so in order to make that clear, um, James says, after um, so each one of you is tempted when you are dragged away, which is frightening terminology, isn't it? I'm dragged away. What's dragging me away? It's my own mm -hmm. evil desire. Mm -hmm. And so it is very strongly pointing at it. The temptation does not come from God. It comes from within my own sinful heart. And then that, that progression, desire has, con then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. I've heard this passage used to say that an evil desire is not a sin until you act on it because it says desire gives birth to sin. So it's not a sin until the desire has conceived. But I'm skeptical about that interpretation. Why would I, can you do, you think, do you agree with my skepticism? It, why would you argue from this that, or can we argue from this, that we're not really sinning until we give in to a temptation? The, is it possible for us to have an evil desire that is not yet sin until we act on it? That's a tricky question and a slippery slope. <laughs> It is. Because Jesus himself was tempted. The temptation was put before him. Turn the stones into bread. Mm -hmm. Throw yourself down. And so in his case, he was clearly not sinful. Right? He never sinned. And I've even heard this verse used as evidence that Jesus was not God because God cannot be tempted by evil. Mm -hmm. But we all know that Jesus was tempted by evil in the desert. So therefore, he must not be God. That was the line of reasoning I heard back at Michigan State back in 1980, 79 and 80 from a, a cult member. But um, I found the difference being that the Lord Jesus was never tempted by his own evil desire. Mm -hmm. That's was, the difference. I was and thinking that. He exactly. wasn't tempted by something within himself. Right. Like I might be tempted to go get more chips right. or to go do something that I think nobody will watch. Whereas Jesus, the, the devil put the temptation out there, Yes. but Jesus himself wasn't tempted. He didn't need to, 
the, the temptation appealed to his pride and show yourself and you know, prove that you're really God. He didn't need to give in to that because he knew who he was. Right. He was never tempted in the sense that he was considering even yeah. doing this thing. Whereas we are tempted by our own desires and things we feel like doing. Mm -hmm. And we are tempted by other things from mm -hmm. external sources as well. Yeah, I, I've also said other people make the argument that there's a difference between being tempted and yielding to temptation. It's not sin to be tempted, but to yield to temptation, yeah. sin. But going back to your question, Pastor, I would say that it is dangerous. And I've heard this argument used many times in affirming some sins of our day, today. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's a very dangerous statement to make. Yeah. This, the implications for us here are what is the sin nature? Because Jesus was, the Bible makes it clear that he was tempted in every way as we are. That's what makes him an effective high priest, that he does understand the, ex, the external nature of temptation. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that he was tempted in the same way that Adam and Eve were, in the sense that Adam and Eve did not have yet a sin nature. They were still unfallen, and so they didn't have a predisposition toward sin, and, and therefore their sin happened when they acted on this deceit of Satan. So Jesus represents us like Adam and Eve represented us. And he does understand what it's like to be tempted and face adversity. But there is something horrible, horribly wrong about us on the inside also. Is we don't need an external source of temptation for us to be dragged away, as James says, and enticed by our own evil desire. We find ways to run after sin. We don't need Satan to tempt us. We'll find a way by ourselves, I think is the implication, and I think that's what James is saying. And so there is a distinction between our facing of temptation and Jesus's because he didn't have that sin nature. So there must be something different. Jesus was never dragged away and enticed by his own evil desire. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something going on here. And the other thing is, if it is my own evil desire that's dragging me away and enticing me, then back to your statement, um, is it wrong to be tempted? If, I, if I'm walking down the street and there's a $100 bill, I see it fall out of a person's pocket, and I have the option of telling them, hey, you dropped your money, or not telling them and picking it up, that choice, that temptation is still external, and I have not yet sinned just because the idea crossed my mind of, oh, I could take that for myself. But it's so close right. that I, I'm afraid I would be easy to deceive myself and yeah. say, oh, I didn't think anything. Yeah. In other words, for Jesus... I don't think that the thought would have crossed his mind, mm -hmm. oh, I could keep that for him myself. He didn't have that predisposition like we do. And so granted, just because I thought it, I can still overcome it and not let the temptation gain root 
and do the other things that James says, because it will produce sin, and sin will produce death. And so I can say no to my evil desire and, um, and tell the person, hey, you dropped your $100 and give it to him right away. And so I've done the right thing. But what I want to, what, I'm, what I think is true is that that initial thought to keep it for myself sprang from my evil desire that's in me. And for me to say that it's not there is to misunderstand how horribly sinful we really are. Mm-hmm. That's my, my, my concern anyway. But I, I, I would have to be careful here. I don't want to be dogmatic. That would, um, I'm teachable on that point. Any other thoughts on that? Does it make sense to you? Is there a, another way to draw distinctions? That's what a good theologian does, right, is differentiate this from that. I think something you said about the initial thought, and I can think back to a couple of times when something was, you know, things happen in life and and this thought entered my head, I could just do this. Mm-hmm. And that was like a moment, it, it was it was an internal thing that came from, I don't even know where, some needs that I thought that I had that weren't being met. And so the thought was there, I could just do this. And at that moment, I don't think I had sinned, but I think I was on the edge. And whatever I was gonna think of next, if I kept playing with that thought or if I cut it out, I think, but but that thought came from within me. It didn't come directly from anybody coming along and saying, hey, why don't you do X? Let me ask this question. Would would it have been appropriate for you to think of your response to that thought as, as repenting? Would you would it have been okay for you to think, I need to repent of that thought? Would you is that an accurate way to describe the response? Or or is it, oh I'm just not gonna go there? I'm not sure that I thought of it at that moment as I should repent of this. I thought, this is like a weed that has to be cut out mm-hmm. now. Is I cannot a, play with this thought. It's a very fine line. It was, it was very fine. And it, it happened probably a couple of times over many years. But it, this thought appears, and it's almost like I could see, okay, if you let this go, it's, it's going to wreck the garden. It's a weed. you got to get it out get it out by the roots right now. Don't play with yes. it. So I guess I should have thought of repenting. I didn't I look at it. Yeah. I didn't look at it that I needed to repent for it yet. But I knew that if I kept on going with it, it, would, it could turn into something I would really need to repent mm-hmm. for. Yeah, I would think that the right response would be repentance. Personally, um, you know, I've heard prayers, and I do pray this sometimes uh, when we ask for, we confess of our sins in, sins, in thought, in word, and in deed. So, and there have been times when I've been praying and asking God for things, and I got partway through a sentence, and realized that that was that was not right of me to ask that, and I did have to. Say, God, I'm sorry. I know you knew what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. I didn't say it yet all yeah, the way, but I yeah. know you knew where the thought right. was going. Yeah. And no, I'm, I'm sorry. I should not be thinking yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And, we, and to say that we have no sin would be erroneous. We, we know that from the scripture. 
and and so we are on the fights and all the time. But I would say in my advancing walk with the Lord, right? So I'm I'm more mature now than I was 40 years ago. I feel more often a um, necessity to repent of desires. I'm so grieved that I would even want to do that thing. And so that is, a, I, I, I think it's a fine line and it's, it's worthy to be paid attention to. And I'm a little bit nervous that knowing my uh, approach to the scriptures, trying to f cross every <laughs> T and dot every I, that I might be tempted to spend too much time on this particular topic. But I'm trying not to. So we've already talked about it here a bit. But I'm trying to, let's just say, hey, it's really dangerous to have a sinful thought. And the big idea from James is it's, whatever is going on, it's coming from the inside. It's not coming from God. So given that reality, that it's not the temptation to us is God made me this way. Or God put me in this spot. I can't help it. Or God is, wants me to fall. That's what James is trying to address, right? No one should say, when you're tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. It, mm. It's never right to blame God for temptations, for temptations towards sin. And, and he explains why, and the answer is because it's coming from somewhere else. Wherever the line is, we still know that eventually it's my fault, right? Mm -hmm. And so that being said then, he goes on to this next phrase, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. So he, I think that's transitional. And then he goes into the second part, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. What is he, why does he say that here? How does that flow from the argument previously stated? Or is it just another proverb from a box? What's the connection? If the temptation is coming out of something you don't, you feel like you don't have, but you should have. And if I just, you know, did X, I could get that thing that I don't have or that situation I don't have to look back and that all the good things come from God. So if I don't have it, it's that maybe God hasn't given me that good thing yet, but that every good thing comes from God, and I shouldn't be tempted out of my own jealousy or envy or whatever to go and try to get that. I think uh, Tim Keller, I heard him say once that if we knew what God knew, we would be grateful for exactly what he's giving us when we ask for things. In other words, we would want what he's giving for us because we would see what he knows and we would see that it was good for us. You know, mm -hmm. if I had what I had wanted when I was young, the things I prayed for even, I'm so glad that God didn't grant my immature requests about life. I wasn't qualified to ask those. <laughs> and, and so I have learned since that God really did have a better blessing for me. And so how much more is it true that if we knew, we could trust him. So what you're saying, Don, is that the good things come from him. That's one of the reasons that flows. Any other ways to see the connection between no one should say God is tempting me and every good and perfect gift comes from above? 
Do you see the you see the opposite nature of those, right? The first one is, man, God is trying to make right. me sin. He's trying to get you. Yes, and the exact opposite is no. Mm-hmm. He's giving you good and perfect gifts. Right. And so for you to misunderstand is to misunderstand him, to blame him for evil mm-hmm. and to not recognize him as the source of good is to get it all backwards. If you go back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, the reason that they were tempted to eat the fruit that they were told not to eat is because Satan presented it in a way that made it sound like God was withholding some good things from them exactly that they deserve and they should have mm-hmm. and so they could say it's god's fault because he didn't give me this and this and this so i'm just going to get it on my own um sarah and abraham were promised a child child didn't come right away so they thought well we're supposed to get this child we'll just help god out and not realizing that a child is a gift from God and that God gives good gifts. He gives everything that you need when you need it. Adam and Eve didn't trust God's goodness to give them every good gift. Abraham and Sarah failed at a moment in time not trusting that God's good gift would come. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing the results of Abraham and Sarah's helping God out. Mm-hmm. And, and that many times when we're tempted to take things in our own hands and and just I'll just God didn't give me what I wanted I'll just get it on my own maybe not everybody thinks that way but there are some of us who do so we're not seeing that God gives good perfect gifts in his timing when he wants what he wants and that if he didn't give it to us yet we weren't supposed to have it because he's good mm-hmm. not because he's not cooperating yeah. with my plan. So I think you're saying very well that, <clears throat> like Adam and Eve, if we are tempted to think that God's holding out on us or not giving us what we would really want, <clears throat> knowledge of good and evil or whatever they thought this would be good for wisdom, that they're misunderstanding that God doesn't withhold things that are good for you. So there's that complete opposite part. Mm-hmm. But the other way that I would want to see it or to at least think about it is, what if what's happening to you feels bad, like a temptation, like a test, right? Count it all joy when you face trials. It feels bad, my life is shot, I lost mm-hmm. my job, my, you know, I'm in trouble at the bank, my wife left me, you know, 101 bad things. That's where we should, not see. it's God's fault. What's wrong with God? You know, like Job's wife would say, curse God and die. And that's when you have to understand that even that is a good and perfect gift from God. I was wondering if you were going to tie that back to previous verses that talked about suffering. Yeah. Because we we went through that. Mm-hmm. My family and I went through that. That it seemed like the whole world was falling apart Nobody was stepping in to help it, fix it, stop it. And at that point, you could say, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? I've given you everything, and here you're just dumping us out. Um, But 
looking back on it, I can see that it was good. Mm -hmm. The reasoning or the motive of how it happened maybe was not that somebody else's issue they'd have to deal with God on, but for me and my family, God had a plan in allowing us to go through what we went through. Yeah. And it's had some really good results in spite of how painful how it was, painful it was yeah, yeah. or whose fault it was. Yeah. It, it was not God's fault. Um, but yeah, you had to accept that sometimes pain and suffering is what God has for you because of the results it produces. Right. And you certainly have a hard time seeing that at the beginning of it or in the midst of it. Right. All you want is to be rescued. So how does James support his thesis that every good gift, perfect, every good and perfect gift is from above? What does he say next to try to support that line of reasoning? If you're facing a bad thing, but God is good, how does he comfort us? What else does he tell us about it? Well, he says he doesn't change. Right. It's not like he <clears throat> is um, fickle. Today you're good and tomorrow you're bad. Mm -hmm. You know, and So the yeah, the immutability of God, right? Mm -hmm. the fact, is that really a comfort? Is that how is that a comfort? It is a comfort. How is the fact that God is not changing? How does that function as a powerful comfort here? I think it has to be connected with some of the other attributes of God, that God is good, mm -hmm. and God is just, and God is in control. And he's omnipotent, that none of this surprised him. He wasn't shocked at the actions of some people that caused a situation. He knew it. He doesn't change. Whatever his long-term purpose is and was for us, it still is. And we, and we need to just rest in the fact that God is good, unchanging, and that he's, he's got a plan here. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree, Donna. It's connected to um, God's other attributes. And one of the attributes I've heard people connected to is the impassibility, that God is not emotional, hmm. that he loves us all the same. Yeah. I mean, you know, in... He's stable emotionally. Yes. He's not flighty up and down. Right. And down. Moody. He's not moody. No, no. Know? God loves us all the same. Yeah. And I think that's a comfort. It is. And he doesn't change like shifting shadows. Mm -hmm. like the shadows that are constantly. And he's the light. Like He comes down from heaven like the heavenly light. So he's the sun in the sky who doesn't change even though the wind is blowing and the shadows keep changing, the sun making the shadows is not changing. And I think that's maybe the word picture he's trying to use. I have recently thought or come across the idea that the very fact, even in my suffering, the very fact that I exist right now, that I am conscious in communicating with God, is itself proof that he never changes. Because if he changed, I would not be. I wouldn't, you know what I'm saying? The, the strongest existential evidence that I have for eternal life is that I'm alive right now. That my sin has been covered. I have not been destroyed. And I am, and I am already participating in eternal life. Mm -hmm. I'm strapped in time. Yeah. 
I don't see all of the end yet, and I feel the pain of this of this world. We're still under the curse. Those things haven't been removed yet. But the fact that I am is a strong evidence that he has not changed, and he will still be there. Therefore, I will still be there, because he has made a promise, and he swore an oath against himself even, right? That he would surely be with us. And so um, that's an interesting way to think of it. Mm -hmm. Any other supporting? Uh, did you start to say something, DJ, and cut, and cut you off? I no, I, I just, I'm trying to search for it, but similar thought, Pastor, you're talking about right now. And the song came to my mind, and the lyrics go something like, something about grace that I may go free, that I may walk free. So the fact that, you know, I'm alive right now, despite of who we are, what we have done, the sins that we have done in our life. It's an evidence of eternal life. Exactly. Yeah. I heard a podcast today of someone talking about heaven, and part of our problem is that we think that heaven is, is too distant, and, and we are already experiencing eternal life. Hmm. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but has eternal life. Not will get it, mm -hmm. but we already have eternal life. Um, so he... Uh, he supports the argument that good and perfect gifts come from the Father who doesn't change. And then this last phrase, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. What does that sentence mean? Unpack that one. First of all, I like the word that he chose, the verb that he chose. It was a decision, he chose to do it. He wasn't okay. forced, he wasn't bribed. It wasn't a political move. He chose to give us birth. So the situation we're in is a plan, right? Yep, so the, even our suffering is not an accident, right? He chose. He chose, he chose sort of separate from the suffering or whatever we're going through, God chose to give us new birth through through the word through his word of truth that just the fact that we have salvation at all shows that god is good mm -hmm. this um the phrase gives us birth through the word of truth what is he talking about you use the word new birth you think it's the same thing is that what he's describing it could be physical birth or new birth or both through the Life of, at all. Through the word of truth. You know. I would think we would get new birth, spiritual birth, through the yeah. word of truth. I did a word study, and I was hoping that that was the same, um, you must be born again word. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's not, not, no. But it is the same word that's used in the second time, up and above when he talked about the progression. When he said, desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. That's a different kind of word for giving birth to or leading to or causing it's a causal relationship but it's mm -hmm. also got a birth connotation and then sin when it is full grown gives birth to death that word for birth to death sin gives birth to death is the same form same word as this he chose to give us birth through the word of truth so that final outcome of sin being birthing or causing or leading to death is the same word as this 
chose to give us this new birth or this birth through the word of truth. So I think it might be James's way of saying being born again. Right. But it's it's not exactly the same word, but it doesn't mean it's not what he meant. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's connected to the word of truth, through the word of truth, you know, this is eternal life that they may know you, mm-hmm. God, in, in John 17, and, and uh, you know, sanctify them by your truth. I mean, the Lord is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, there's such a strong connection. I think it would preach that he's talking about that. Right. It, I think the word can refer to Jesus Christ, but it can also refer to the word of the gospel. Yeah, the word of truth of the gospel. Yeah. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing yeah. by the word of God. Right. Yeah. And the, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. What does he mean by that? God chose us to give us birth through the word of truth, that we would be some kind of a first fruits of all he created. I want to say that this whole suffering thing that would even tempt us to say that God is punishing me, God is uh, tempting me to evil, is so important that we understand that it's coming from God as a gift, even the suffering is coming as a gift for this reason, that we would be a kind of first fruits of all he created. What what do you think he's talking about? What would it mean to be a first fruit of all that God has created? If you look at seeds, they have to die to produce something. Jesus was our first fruit who rose again from the dead. He was Colossians the first fruit. He's the firstborn from among the dead. Yeah. And and the the. Resurrection was on the festival of the first fruits. Hmm. Um, that's he, he died and he came back to life. A seed has to die and it comes back to life to produce it. Maybe some of the suffering is we, in a sense, die to some of the evil desires or our evil hmm. thoughts, die to those and come back to life as a first fruit. That's an idea. It might be spiritualizing it a little too much, but... It's worth thinking about, for sure. Other possibilities? Any other ideas? I wish I had more Hebrew um, cultural understanding of the of the, um, yeah. the festivals. I was thinking that, but... I wonder if there's a first fruits notion. James is a pretty strong Jew, and... He's right. writing to, to those, yeah. But I was hesitant because, you know. <laughs> I don't know for sure where it would go. So maybe that's something I'll do a little study on before Sunday. But I, I, I wondered if this is sort of a way of saying that God is letting us follow in the steps of Jesus and endure suffering here on earth so that we, with the Lord Jesus, may be presented to God as the glory of his creation. Maybe first fruits doesn't necessarily mean just first chronologically, but maybe first as in most beautiful right. or most glorious. Yeah. And that, you know, there's a there's a rejoicing if the festival of first fruits as I understand it, it's a rejoicing of the evidence of God's blessing. 
and that our suffering would be such that it would produce in reality a glory to God, to the glory of God, that we would be demonstrated, as Peter would say, that we would be refined as if by fire to shine forth mm -hmm. his glory, that, that we would be sort of like the primary piece of evidence of his great glory, mm -hmm. that we would be the most shining example of what God does in the life of a believer, that he would let people who, who believe in Jesus go through trials and come out the other side more beautiful as a way to demonstrate his glory, that we might be part of the great gift given to Jesus. I, you know, there's texts that argue that, that God has given believers to Jesus right. as a reward for his work. We are Jesus's, we get to be Jesus's reward. And, uh, and there's texts that support that too. You know, I think even Isaiah 53, you know, the, these are my children and the reward God has given me or some phrase or like that. Hebrews and I think of Ephesians, right? Yeah. That uh, will be the trophy of grace. Yes, yes. And, and Paul saying again elsewhere um, that um, our present suffering is not worthy to be compared mm -hmm. to the glory mm -hmm. that will be revealed in us. I think James yeah. is saying you need to understand that this good God is working in your life, even when it's all bad, even when it's so bad that mm -hmm. you're going to accuse him of tempting you mm -hmm. wrongly. But you need to understand that he's good and that he is making something more glorious out of all he created out of you. you know, that we are His, the pinnacle of his sanctifying, redeeming, saving work. Is that, a, that to me, that would be exciting if that's what mm -hmm. it is. I, and I've been meditating on that a lot. Well, we're going to get 41 minutes, um, 42 actually. Is there uh, anything else you'd like to add as far as how does the gospel pertain? I think we're getting pretty close to that, right? The new birth, we talked about the gospel a little bit. Um, any thoughts about how we could adorn this passage? Or I'd like to find out more about that song, DJ. So, okay. Um, eventually. Any other thoughts about what we could, I could do to... Um... Yeah, I remember um, what David Hume said. Okay. Uh, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? That question. The great critique of yeah. the presence of evil, yeah. yeah. It assumes that we understand good and bad so well that we yes. could presume upon God's wisdom. And... Uh, yeah, it's sort of a false argument because it presumes that I would be smart enough to mm -hmm. not be able to see the good that can come from a difficult mm -hmm. pain. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it, it leaves you with only two options, yes. right? Yeah. He's either impotent or malevolent. Right, yeah. yeah. Where, whereas the truth is he's using his the suffering and his patience with evil to demonstrate the objects of his grace the glory of his love. Mm -hmm. And so I know how much more he loves me because Jesus endured my suffering. Mm -hmm. Had there not been evil, then there would not have been a way for Jesus to demonstrate that kind of love. And so uh, far be it from me to say that I understand all God's reasons for anything, but that certainly seems to be something he's proud of is that he's demonstrated in the Lord Jesus. As Romans 9 says, he's demonstrated to the objects of his mercy the magnitude of his glory 
Um, in the go ahead. 40s, I believe it was, there were five missionaries that were sent to the Elka Indians yeah. to spread the gospel, and they died. Mm -hmm. At around the same time, there was another five who went, I think, to Bolivia, and they were some of the first people in a different mission board and there, somebody wrote a book about it later called God Planted Five Seeds. Mm. And the idea was that these five men were killed, but their wives and their families and others were still there and kept preaching and kept spreading the gospel. And eventually that group came to Christ and they went back and they showed the relatives where they had buried the men they killed. And so, on first glance, it seemed like, God, how could you let that happen? But God allowed those first five to die so that the whole tribe could eventually come to Christ. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Yeah. And even if you just cast the shadow, is it Elizabeth Elliot? Is it? She was one she of was the... She was one of the wives. If you just look at the magnitude of her ministry worldwide and the people she's impacted with that story, it, you know, I'm sure her husband seeing all things from eternity is rejoicing in the impact she's had because of her deep suffering and all that, you know? Yeah, yeah and I think his brother also went into missions yes. right after yeah. and served for many years in Peru. Yeah. You know? So then there's that. And then I was driving this morning and this song came on the radio. I haven't listened to the radio in a while, but the song came on. And it's a song called Evidence. And the words jumped out at me because it made me think of the the suffering and the temptation and God's goodness and the idea of looking back on God's goodness. And it says, all throughout my history, your faithfulness has walked beside me. The winter storms made way for spring in every season from where I'm standing. I see the evidence of your goodness all over my life. I see your promises and fulfillment. Help me remember when I'm weak. Uh, he goes down. There's a chorus again. Then it says, see the cross, the empty grave. The evidence is endless. All my sin rolled away because of you, O oh Jesus. I see the evidence of your goodness all over my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking if, we, if we're tempted to, to blame God or to think that God is somehow holding out on us or not doing what he ought to, like James starts showing the goodness of God through that God is unchanging and God gave us birth, God is also good. And if mm -hmm. we look back at scripture and look at the attributes, we can be encouraged that God is good. He does know what he's doing. Mm -hmm. any, um, any thoughts about our congregation? Any um, unique parts about this that especially apply to us today? And I know we have a number of families <clears throat> facing some pretty deep suffering. And then there's other people that maybe don't get as much attention, but sort of have a baseline of constant suffering, setbacks. Is there any uh, anything specific? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm personally, Pastor, like in my life as a young man, I think, I mean, obviously we can relate this to deep suffering in, around us, but I also think with like little suffering, maybe okay. dealing with impatience, okay. dealing with discontentment, maybe like with where you're at in life, you just gonna move on to the next or, or something like that. For sure, I think sometimes we think, 
well, my suffering is not big enough to make it to the church prayer list, but it can be a very big dampening effect on our spiritual joy oh, yeah. and our walk. And so we just have these little pesky things that make us down and discouraged and we can be distracted by them. And we need just as much as the deep sufferer, we need to be reminded that God's not hurting me. If I knew what he knew, I'd be so grateful for what he's doing today. Even this challenge is good. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that might be, we're tempted to think that some things are so low and common that they aren't that big a deal, when really they might be the very big thing we're facing. You know, the pile of, you know, the straws that breaks the camel's back, right, is a bunch of small straws. Mm -hmm. and we need to trust God for all those. That's a good reminder. Any other thoughts about for our church? Or? I think each, most people have something in their life that they wish would be different, that they wish they could change. If this would happen, I'd be happy, or if that would happen, I'd be happy. If this would happen, I'd be successful. We all have things that we want or we would like. I think we need to realize that we have a choice here. We can look at life like the first half, that temptation is someone else's fault, and my falling to it is someone else's fault. Or we can choose to look at God's gift and his love and his goodness and just have faith that he, he's going to work on this and that someday life will be the way he wants. And we have a choice as to how we look at life. We can mm -hmm. look at it, the bad side, or we can look at the good. And if we do look at the good now, we're living more according to the truth than any other way. Mm -hmm. And we will someday be most pleased by that perspective. Well, the only things we'll regret will be having not trusted him more, right? I mean, that's, so it would be great to live a life without regrets, that we would uh, seize each day as, a, as the gift that it is and trust this, unchanging one who created the stars and, and all those things, who's also the same one who endured the cross on our behalf mm -hmm. and is working in our lives to make us a kind of first fruits of all that he's created. It's a pretty, pretty neat thing. Well, let's close in prayer. I'll, I'll pray tonight. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Um, we do repent of how quickly we blame you for things or we play we play the victim card and um, we ask that you would forgive that we confess our tendency to do it and help us remember that you are the unchanging god of good and perfect gifts and that you don't let anything happen to us that's not for our benefit help us walk in com uh, comfort and peace and uh, not be anxious as we trust you in jesus name Amen. Amen.